0: Do not go any further, turn around, go home. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche?
2: Weird foreign
0: feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you. Now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Clanky County 911. There's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like. I
1: think he gets this feeling that he's untouchable. I think he had this massive inferiority complex from his father, from being bullied, and now that's turned very quickly into a superiority complex. This is quite a common theme with serial kind of offenders, people who earlier on in their lives felt uh, belittled or felt inferior, and then later on, for whatever reason, feel emboldened or feel kind of egotistical. Jeannie Savile was very much like that.
2: Hi guys, you're here from the other episode I just did with Dr. Shaham Das about the Zodiac Killer. Or you're starting with this one, who knows, we're now going to be talking about the butcher baker Robert Hansen, who kidnapped dancers and sex workers, dropped them in the woods and hunted them like game. What makes a man do that? We'll talk about how he had two sides to him, but not necessarily a split personality. Dr. Shahom is a trained psychiatrist with a lot of experience in the business. He talks about true crime stories, some from his own life, and delves into the psychiatric backgrounds of murderers and grisly people. Subscribe to a Psych for Sore Minds on YouTube and follow him on at PsychSore on Twitter. Hope you enjoy hearing about the Butcher Baker. Hello again, or hello for the first time, if you didn't watch our first little collaboration with uh, Dr. Shahom Das from a Psych for Minds. He's a very well-renowned psychiatrist. Hello, Dr. Shahom, how are you doing?
1: Hello, Mr. Gold, very well, thank you. I don't know if I'm world-renowned, but uh, I'll take it.
2: <laughs> you are increasingly becoming world-renowned, and I'm Andrew Gold from On the Edge with Andrew Gold, where I interview lots of uh, interesting people and get into their minds, psychopaths and things like that as well. Lots of crossover, and today we wanted to look at, and I'll be asking Dr. Shahom about. Robert Hansen. Now, Robert Hansen was known as the butcher baker in the seventies and eighties. He went after sex workers and exotic dancers, and this one was absolutely fascinating. It's why I wanted to do this and ask Dr. Charm about it. You know, he proposed this one. I thought, you know, it really made me think a bit about the Hunger Games. I'm always thinking of pop culture references, and it's amazing how much pop culture stuff comes from the horrible things that we do to each other. I mean, you've got to get influences from somewhere, I suppose, as murky as that is. And Robert Hansen would abduct women and turn them loose in the woods to then hunt them down like animals. Uh, really, really strange and horrible thing. I, I'm thinking about how big the woods must have been, but he was up in Alaska, where it would have been snowing and horrible. Some women survived, uh, some did not. So... Dr. Shahom, what, what, what are your thoughts just in general about Robert Hansen? So that's a good
1: question. I, I think one of the things that strikes me or one of the one what I heard about the details of this case, the thing that really struck me uh, at the beginning was his background and his childhood. So his childhood wasn't a very easy one. He worked really long hours in the family bakery from a young age. Um, so. And his dad was a really strict disciplinarian. I think he was. Uh, his dad was a baker, but he used to be in the army at one point in his life. And I mean, that's not that unnatural, right? There's lots of people that have strict parents. I had quite strict parents. But when you look at more details, there were just these little bits that just seemed a little bit odd. So, for example, he was apparently naturally left-handed, but his father forced him to write with his uh, with his right hand. He had a bit of a stutter, which he was bullied for and mocked for. So I think even with this small piece of information, we're really getting the impression of what he was like as a child. So I think there's, that he had two different personas. I'm not talking about split personality. I'm just talking about the personas that he projected. I think on the one hand, he was, was kind of pressurised by his father to be this really hard, diligent, upstanding citizen. He's very conscientious about his image and he was very probably scared of his father's discipline. But on the other hand, he must have had this core belief, which was, I am defective. So, you know, my if I want to write with a certain hand, I can't. If I want to do things for fun, my, my dad will beat me. Um, I've got a stutter and people at school bully me for that. So I think that must have it just made, grown a massive inferiority complex inside him inside of him yeah that's that's the first thing that stands
2: out it's really really interesting and I know I keep going for the pop culture references but and you've never seen any of the films I mentioned but Red Dragon no no so that is the third Hannibal movie I think it was the third one and Rafe Fiennes or Ralph Fiennes however you might know him the guy who played Voldemort and uh one of the Nazis in Schindler's List um he plays the baddie, so to speak. And he's got like a, I think he has a cleft palate and he he was, they find out gradually he was uh, abused as a child by a disciplinarian parent. I think it might have been his mother though. And I think there might have even been the left-handed, right-hand thing. I've definitely seen that in movies. So again, it's just that thing of like, and at the end, uh, oh, actually, you know what? No, I should never start. I should never start a sentence without the end when lots of people are listening who might not have seen the film. But the point <laughs> is they get into the psychology and they use that to sort of try and stop him. Was, was he Kaiser Soze all along? <laughs> it was Kaiser No one's <laughs> supposed to know that. Okay, so you have seen a film or, you, or at least you know the reference to the usual suspects.
1: <laughs> I suppose when you, when you were talking about that the film, that uh, this has got nothing to do with, with uh, mass murderers, but it just popped into my mind, was uh, The King's Speech. So the guy that's played by Colin, what's he called? Colin Firth, yeah, he is quite defective in many ways and he was clearly sort of bullied and pressurised by the rest of the royal family and forced into this role that he doesn't want to be in, yeah. But I suppose the natural question is why many people have these experiences and why do some turn into these psychopathic killers like Robert Hansen but not others? And also, what what does cause
2: a a stutter?
1: Uh, So a stutter is like a neurological issue with the feedback loop when the brain the motor function of the brain uh, just can't keep up with, with, the, with the way that the, the mind's uh, analysing the data that's going through its head. But I think what's interesting about him is, as well as everything we mentioned, he was apparently quite shy. He had bad acne, as well as the stutter, and he was the victim of bullying. So boys would make fun of him at school, um, girls rejected him on a regular basis. He was often described as a loner, and that's a common theme. You see that with a lot of people who turn out to be mass murderers or serial killers.
2: Is that this is something I've been looking into quite a lot recently? With different guests, I've been speaking to uh, uh, viewers and listeners can can guess as to who mm, whom, uh, but but victimhood and how scary victimhood can turn out to be. So, is it that he was he considered himself a victim, and I think people can sometimes go on to do horrible things in the name in the name of being or considering themselves to be victims?
1: Yeah. So I think that it's, it's very, very complicated and it's different for different people. I mean, one thing that I would say, and this is, this is no secret, I'm sure most of our viewers will know this, is that people who suffer from physical abuse often go on to be physical bullies or physically abuse people themselves. So to be specific, it's very common for young boys, for example, seeing domestic violence from their mothers towards their fathers to go on uh, to commit it to their future partners. And the same with sexual abuse. We know that people who abuse children, not not always, but often were the victims of abuse themselves. And it's quite complicated because that does happen. But there are more people that have been through those experiences who don't go on to to be a violent or sexual offenders. Uh, and I think part of the mechanics is modeling what you see. So you, you literally copy what you see. So if you see your parents physically fighting uh, regularly, then in your mind, that seems like an acceptable way to manage conflict. And I think another part of it is the power dynamic. So because you were dominated either physically or through sexual abuse by a parental figure, you feel that every power, every relationship has to have a power dynamic. So you and that's that kind of to a degree explains why some women uh, are more likely to end up in r- abusive relationships than others. Again, it's it's related to the childhood experiences. So they I wouldn't say they see it as normal, that's the wrong phrase to use, but they they certainly don't see it as unusual. So to them it's not as a, it's not alien.
2: And we seek, would you say we seek to or, or most or many of us seek to replicate the dynamic of our parents in our own romantic endeavors?
1: Yeah, yeah. But it's not because you think what happened in your parents' relationship is right necessarily. It's because you think that there needs to be a power dynamic. So it's not, so it's somebody who's watched their father abuse the mother doesn't think that's a good, you know, uh, doesn't, overtly think I need to do that but they will think that there has to be somebody has to be in charge and somebody has to dominate somebody has to be stronger and I'd rather
2: it was me than than my partner and so they go into relationship expecting somebody to be dominant. And then Robert Hansen then he sort of exhibited this dominance at first in uh, hunting animals um, going out in the woods and hunting animals and things like that before he moved on of course to to people so, so, so is that how it manifests itself in him?
1: So I, I think all of this is tied in. I think that Hanson was a social outcast. We know that he's a bit of a loner. He spent a lot of time alone. He became quite an avid game hunter and he became quite good at it. And you know, people stick to doing things as a hobby that they become quite good at. So I wonder whether he had all this embarrassment and shame and rage from the way that his father was physically abusive towards him the way that the males in his schools mocked him, the way that the females in his, in his schools and his peers rejected him. So I wonder whether he, he felt this need for sexual dominance on women because of all this rejection. And then he kind of displaced it into, into the act of hunting and just became this like really warped kind of character.
2: Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. The funny thing about him is that, you know, he was married... Um, and he moved to Alaska, set up a life, had a bakery. He was well-liked, and it, it got me yeah. thinking. These things always get me thinking, I suppose, on a, a, a macro level about just the people you meet on in society, and I just thought, like, everyone... You know, you walk past someone, and they just sort of... They might be rude, or they, they bump into you, or whatever. They don't say sorry. I'm like, oh, what a, And it can stay with me for, like, quite a while. Like, what a bastard. But they might be him. They might be someone like him, I guess. I, mean, I guess it's exceedingly rare to have someone quite as horrific as him, but he was seen as a nice... Bloke, wasn't he?
1: He was seen as a, a nice bloke. I think everything, everything you've said is correct, but I also think that there was something simmering underneath. So you might know this, but in 1960, when Hansen was 21 years old, he was convicted. You know, he convinced a young baker employee, so his employee, to help him to burn uh, a school bus garage. And then he got caught because the boy confessed later. And actually, you talked about him being married, that, that ruined his marriage. So his wife divorced him and, and he and he was kind of uh, left alone. Uh, and the reason I bring this up is, that, is what I was going back to before. I think that everybody has two versions, of the, multiple versions of ourselves that we project. There's the kind of socially acceptable one. There's the you know one that you have banter with your mates and the kind of language and ideas you had would be different. But I think with him, it's even more pronounced than usual because he... Because of what his father instilled in him, he had he went out of his way to portray himself as a really functional uh, member of society who's contributing to, to the community around him. But I think there's this bubbling resentment which just kind of came out once in a while.
2: He killed between 17 and 21 people, uh, women. Uh, he was sentenced to 461 years imprisonment without parole. He's uh, a sort of scrawny, skinny, uh, short person, and you know, a lot of people listening to this will be short. I don't mean to disparage the the, the all short people. There might be some bakers as well. There might be bakers as well. Not all bakers. <laughs> Dr. Sean might be short. Are you short? I have no idea. I know
1: you're uh, really tall, aren't you? You talked about it before. Yeah. I'm I'm average. I
2: think I'm 5'11". Okay, but but not average in personality. Um, <laughs> it's a lots of charisma um, but yeah i mean oh he died he died in 2014 age 75 so he spent the rest of his life in prison but yeah scrawny short but that you know without wanting to characterize all people who are sort of skinny and short and he's got a sort of dweeby look as well on his face um, did that might that have uh, affected things as well um well
1: i think he potentially could have put his victims at ease and he could have used this to his advantage i mean he certainly did select very specific victims and he picks people who are quite vulnerable who people wouldn't necessarily even notice or care about so much he, he picked some very vulnerable people at the dregs of society and who would not be credible uh, witnesses as well so i think it's probably all tied together i think he's actually probably quite cunning and deceptive i think the other thing about him is that he actually got a, before he got caught he got away with a lot of stuff um, so I'll give you some examples. In 1972, before his major his main killing spree, he was arrested twice, once for the abduction and attempted rape of a housewife, and again for assaulting a prostitute. And these were very serious crimes, but there was almost little, there was very little retribution. And then there was the case of Cindy Paulson. Do you know about that? Yes, 1983.
2: Uh, Hanson, the, the butcher baker offered 17 year old Cindy Paulson, $200 to perform oral sex. When she got into the car, he pulled out a gun and drove her to his home. Uh, there he held her captive and proceeded to rape and torture her. She later told police that after Hansen chained her by the neck to a post in the house's basement, which is horrific. He took a nap on a nearby couch. When he awoke, he put her in his car and took her to an airport where he told her that he intended to take her out to his cabin, um, a shack somewhere, like in a, in a valley, in a river somewhere, only accessible by a small plane. Paulson, crouched in the back seat of the car with her wrists cuffed in front of her body, saw a chance to escape when Hanson was busy loading the cockpit of his airplane. While Hanson's back was turned, she crawled out the back seat, opened the driver's side door, and ran towards nearby 6th Avenue. She later told police that she had left her sneakers on the passenger side floor of the back seat as evidence that she had been in the car. Hanson panicked and chased her, but Paulson made it to 6th Avenue and managed to flag down a passing truck. The driver, alarmed by her dishevelled appearance, stopped and picked her up. He drove her to the Mush Inn, where she jumped out of the truck and ran inside. While she pleaded with the clerk to phone her boyfriend at the Big Timber Motel, the driver continued to work, where he called the police to report the barefoot, handcuffed woman. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on, on that?
1: I have got some thoughts on that, but I'm just going to... Uh, let's take a little sidestep if I may and give each other a chance to shamelessly plug our channels so for my viewers, uh, Mr. Gold, what could, why should they watch your channel? What kind of things can they expect?
2: Well, if they're fans of your channel, then there's no reason they wouldn't like mine, I think, except I have far less expertise in anything. No, but I am a journalist. I'm a professional journalist. So I investigate people from another angle. It's almost like the complete suite, isn't it? If, if you've got the psychiatric angle from you and they've got the journalistic societal part from me as the journalist, I used to work at the BBC and expose people for all sorts of weird, strange things they were doing. But my podcast, my channel, as got all sorts of weird strange minds from uh, psychopaths and murderers to uh, the man who had to eat his friend's After crashing in the Alps, and also celebrities and famous people, Amanda Knox was on recently. So it's profiling these people in a similar way to how you do, except mine comes at it from maybe more of a societal angle, while yours is a psychiatric value. Really, we should we should just do like you know side by side everyone. Like I'll do half an hour on them, you do half an hour, and you'll get the complete picture. But why should my Lovely listeners and viewers, go to a psych for sore minds, Dr. Shahom Das.
1: No, good question. Um, I, I think they should go to my channel if they're interested in true crime, but with a little sort of sprinkle of psychiatry. So I tend to pick high-profile cases, often related to violence or offending, but not always. So I've recently done videos on Putin, on G Savile. How can you not do a video on that? Uh, and I pick, I pick just high-profile. A bit like what we're doing today, I pick high-profile cases that I think are, are fascinating or have a psychiatric angle. So one that I've done recently is Catherine Knight. Who is the first Australian woman to ever receive a life sentence and in Australia a full term, so she'll never leave prison? Uh, she decapitated her own husband's head, cooked it, and tried to feed it to his kids. So I've done a kind of psychiatric breakdown of her
2: craziness. She tried to f- feed it to her to his kids or both of their kids. Yeah, yeah, it's to his
1: kids from a previous relationship. Yeah, but the police interfered before. Oh my God! They, they oh. found they found his head boiling in a, in a big pot. With a number of vegetables.
2: Ah, right. Go to a site for Saw Mines for that. <laughs> <laughs> Go check out the crazy stuff and that. That's on YouTube only for now until Dr. Shahom starts an audio podcast. I'll keep pushing him to do that. But that's on YouTube. And uh yeah, on the edge with Andrew Gold is mine. Come check it out all cults and stuff as well brainwashing all that stuff it's all on there you'll like it come say hi and say you came from Dr. Shaham or say if you go to Psych for Some Man's comment on something tell him you came from mine because I think we always like that and we tell each other like oh look who just popped over from my channel
1: you do have very fascinating
2: guests I didn't know that you had Amanda Knox on actually she's uh, very interesting she's great and she's got me on her podcast which is coming out in a few months no that, that was really exciting getting her on but then like comedians like David Bedil as well who, who have some sort of societal thing to say so he was talking about. Anti-Semitism. And Richard Dawkins was another one. So you get to talk to these big. That's the fun of having this channel, isn't it? Getting to talk to people. Again, so to to people like psychiatrist Dr. Shaham Das. So that's what it's all about. So go on, tell me what were you saying about Cindy Paulson? So
1: what I think when I read about this is I, I thought that's a, a a black and white, fairly uh, open and closed case, right? And there's no way that he could ever uh, that he couldn't be culpable, held culpable for it. But he convinced the police that he, that. Sh- She'd been setting him up, basically, that she had these extortionate demands. And he said that he had an alibi from a friend and, amazingly, the case was dropped and he was released, he, despite the fact that there's a lot of evidence. Like, you know, she describes a stutter you mentioned before about leaving the shoes in the car. So I think that's relevant because I think that this made Hansen completely emboldened. So I think after that happened, he thought he can get away with everything. That combined with the fact that he had two, excuse me, very serious charges just a couple of years before, or related to sexual offenses. So basically what I'm trying to say is I think he gets this feeling that he's untouchable. And what I think is interesting is as I said before, I think he had this massive inferiority complex from his father from being bullied. And now that's turned very quickly into a superiority complex. And the reason I mention that is because I think this is quite a common theme with serial kind of offenders, people who uh, earlier on in their lives felt uh, belittled or felt inferior. And then later on, for whatever reason, feel emboldened or feel kind of egotistical. So off the top of my head, Jimmy Savile was very much like that. Uh, He was often, he had very mixed messages from his mother, from being told that he was um worthless and being berated by her to later on in his life being told that you know he's this uh, this amazing celebrity anders brevik is another one so he's somebody who was often berated by his parents at times i think by his mother and then later on with his with his father was kind of built up with a lot of
2: grandiosity in fact we've talked about him before haven't we we did that's another one go back and listen to that one anders brevik episode with with me and dr shaham um and, and i think also i'm sure I, i'm definitely thinking now as you say this of of old school friends and I think a lot of people might have this. We had friends who maybe, I don't know, were not doing so well at school when they were younger and then suddenly as they got a bit older, they suddenly were and there's a very specific type of obnoxiousness. We're all obnoxious in different ways. But there's this very specific type that comes from somebody who felt maybe like a victim during school years and later sort of rose in status or felt more confident and emboldened and that's yeah. sort of a quite a toxic... Cocktail, isn't it? So
1: imagine that that toxic cocktail that you're just describing, plus he is a hunter uh, who's actually quite skilled, plus he gets away with multiple offenses and like quite horrific sexual assaults. So you can kind of understand, you can't excuse his actions, of course, but you can understand how all those things combined might lead him to,
2: might encourage him to carry on doing what he did. What a, a very, very scary uh, individual. Oh my word. You wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't want to encounter him. So uh, in terms of catching him, uh, it was FBI agent John Douglas, uh, who's one of the characters, the main characters from Netflix's Mind Hunter. What do you think about his psychological profile?
1: That's a really interesting question. So, I think there's, I think there's a mis, um, a misperception or a misunderstanding that, that forensic psychiatrists, such as myself, do criminal profiling, and we absolutely don't. Some psychologists do. I'm definitely of the camp that it's all slightly BS. To be honest with you, uh, I. <laughs> Even though some people have literally made careers out of psychological profiling, there's no scientific research that backs it up, that shows that it consistently works. And I, so let, let me first of all take, talk about this case, for example. So Douglas, I mean, I liked Mindhunter, I think, think it's an interesting show, but if I'm dissecting what Douglas said, I would argue that what he said wasn't really that helpful or relevant. So he ex- he theorised that the killer was an experienced hunter with low self-esteem. Well, Knowing that they're an experienced hunter, in my view, is not a psychological profile. That's just like what a policeman would do when they're collecting evidence. That's not anything to do with his psychology. It's just the fact that he had hunted these women. I mean, that's obvious. And low self-esteem. I mean, you could argue that everybody who turns out to be a killer, especially a serial killer, has in some sense of the inferiority complex I was talking about, which is low self-esteem. And he, in his profile, he said things like the killer owned a bush plane and had a cabin in this particular valley. It's called the, I'm going to murder the pronunciation now, Matanusku-Susinta Valley. So again, this is where the victim bodies were found. So that's not a psychological profile to me. That's just really basic kind of police investigating. But going back to my kind of beef with, with psychological profiling, I don't know if you've heard of the case of Rachel Nickel. So she's somebody who was it's a really interesting case, uh, absolutely horrific and really tragic. So I believe it was 1992. She was walking with her dog and her young son who had only who was two years old, about to turn three. And she was completely um, viciously, randomly stabbed by a complete stranger, horrible attack, stabbed her like over 70 times. Uh, she died obviously. And then the police used a very well-known criminal psychologist to make a profile. He made some assumptions of who the killer was gonna be. It was completely off. They arrested the wrong person because of this profile. There was this like honey trap set up by the police and they had an an attractive female police officer try and romantically involve herself with the main suspect to coax out this confession from him. And she like was into, well, pretended to be into all this like dark S&M stuff to make him admit that he'd killed Rachel McHale and he hadn't. Um, So, He got arrested and was in remand for about eight months, I believe. And then it was heard that the old Bailey was thrown out immediately because there was just no evidence against him, but it completely ruined his life. And the worst thing about this whole story is the real killer, a man called Robert Napper was actually one of the suspects. And he was released by the police, at least partially due, due to this criminal profiling. And he went on to kill another young woman randomly. And uh, a, and actually that, that woman's young daughter, who was like three or four years old, ended up going to Broadmoor. And it was only DNA, when DNA technology caught up, uh, caught him, uh, years later, so we got caught about ten years later that it was linked to the same person. So that's a long-winded way of saying, of explaining why I personally uh, don't believe in criminal profiling and psychological profiling.
2: Wow, yeah, that is interesting. Well, it makes for good TV series, doesn't it? You know, this I and yeah. I think we're pattern seekers as humans, aren't we? So just evolutionarily, we, we like to find patterns and we like to say like, well, I mean, I do it all the time. I'm constantly profiling everyone I meet, especially since I read John Ronson's The Psychopath Test. So I'm constantly going, that person's psychopath, he's on the spectrum, <laughs> this person has got dyslexia maybe uh, all those kinds of things it's a lot of fun to do I
1: think, I think the problem is the problem is this is that it's quite easy when you catch somebody or when you've caught somebody and when you know somebody's guilty to retrospectively look back at their life and kind of pull out a few things that explain why they might have done what they did which is exactly what we've done in this episode and it's interesting to do but that is very different in my view from doing the opposite doing the opposite way around where you try and figure out when you don't know who the person is and you try and figure out their psychological makeup by the information you know about the crimes, that, in my view, is a very sort of dark art and is not scientific. And as in the case of Rachel Nickell, it can be quite misleading. So I think those two things get conflated. And doing the first thing, understanding people, is, is helpful. Number one, it's interesting for our podcast, but number two, it helps when you rehabilitate them to make them safe for society, which is kind of what I do for a living. But trying to assume that you know what people are like or the psychological makeup I think can be dangerous. And it also works on assumptions. It works that everybody with certain personality traits behave the same way and, and we know that people are far more complex than that.
2: Yeah, so it makes sense to um, retrospectively cri- profile criminals but not do so in advance, uh, you know, on a whim. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Well, i got one last question about about um, the, the butcher baker is why did he sort of keep emblems and things from the people he'd killed and raped in his basement? That's a good question.
1: There there are definitely some uh, serial killers, quite renowned ones, that do that. They keep little trophies. Uh, And BTK would be one, I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, Bind, Torture, Kill was his kind of moniker, and he would take, take these little souvenirs and he would masturbate over them. And he explained that the reason that he did it was because he would get lots of this, he'd get this like this excited sort of frenzy of wanting to, uh, uh, to go out and kill. And he'd also kill women. Uh, and he'd either have to go out and do it, or the other thing that he could do is that he could fantasize about it and masturbate. And that would kind of, it wouldn't get, it would, it would decrease the craving at least for a bit. It's kind of like the equivalent of a Nicorette patch, I guess, if you're like a smoker. So just get it, get get rid of the craving, but instead of the Nicorette patch be a couple of hours, this would last for a couple of weeks for him. Um, so i think that's that's why people do it is they they keep souvenirs so they can relive the murders in their head to kind of get rid of that craving uh which unfortunately doesn't work in the long term it can only it can only uh delay the inevitable
2: is it also about status and and self you know uh self-appraisal and things like that is that why hunters uh keep sort of animal heads in their in their living rooms and things
1: yeah i suppose the difference would be that uh a hunter-keeping-animal head is to show off to everybody, just, you know, look how good I am at doing this. Whereas, and I showed sure you absolutely in the if you're a serial killer, it's got to be very private, right? So you kind of, I suppose you could yeah. say you're showing off to yourself, but it's not to, it's not to show off your skills to, to the public.
2: Dr. Shom, that was a fascinating insight into the mind of the butcher baker. Do go and check out his channel, A Psych for Saw Minds, on YouTube where he delves into many more true crime kinds of of Minds.
1: Mr Gold it's always a pleasure doing a collaboration with you and of course I'd love my uh, subscribers of yours to go and check out your podcast when you speak to a whole range of very weird and fascinating
2: people. Oh thank you that's On The Edge with Andrew Gold come say hello tell us about that you came from each other we like to hear it thank you and good night. Thanks for listening to these two gruesome true crime tales about the Zodiac Killer and the Butcher Baker. Don't ever trust anyone. The world's full of horrible people. That's what we can learn from this. And uh, some nice people too, I suppose. Thanks for listening. Do check out Dr. Shoham Dass' channel, A Site for Sore Minds on YouTube. And I'll be seeing you on the edge.